Well, good morning, everyone. The few, the proud, the working class. <laughs> or spring break is just another week, right? Well, I'm excited because this morning we are going to look at probably my favorite passage in my favorite book in the entire Bible. So this is going to be fun. And to begin with, let me, let me make this statement, and I want you to listen closely. Salvation is not all that great if sin is not all that bad. The height of God's love is not that incredible if we don't understand the true depth of our sin. That's really the heart behind Paul's message this morning. He wants us to understand what it means to live in the domain of darkness. He wants us to understand what it means to live enslaved to the depravity of sin. Because only then, only then can we really appreciate the rescue of God's amazing grace. Only then can we really understand the height and the depth, as Steve just saying, of God's love. Now, I say all that knowing that the passage that we will look at this morning is very, very familiar to all of us. And because it's so familiar, we're at risk of losing the importance of what's communicated in these very familiar verses. It's kind of like the, the young man who grew up with a 67 convertible Mustang in his garage. Somebody asked him one day about that, and he says, oh, that's just an old car my dad used to drive. No, that's a classic. That's incredibly value, and I would love to have that car. We need to make sure that the story of our salvation doesn't become so familiar to us that it loses its value in the same way. And so in order to try to help us uh, have a, a freshness with this story, we're going to take a, a unique perspective by combining a couple of stories. They're both familiar to us. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 through the lens of the prodigal son because they are very closely tied to one another and maybe that will help us see it with a, a fresh set of eyes. So if you want to, you can turn to Luke chapter 15 and I'm going to read to us the parable that Jesus told about the prodigal son. So let's start with that and, and listen closely to what he says. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he, the father, divided his wealth between them, his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when we, he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he said to him and sent him into his fields to, to feed swine, the pigs. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods the swine were eating. And not one was giving anything to him. And he came to his senses and said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. And he got up, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I I've sinned against heaven, and, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead 
and he has come to life. He was lost, and he's been found when they began to be merry. Let's pray together. What an incredible story. Jesus, you're such a great storyteller. The stories that you told paint pictures in our mind. They give us a vision of of what it is you want us to hear and learn. I pray that as we walk through very familiar territory this morning, that that picture in our mind comes to life. That it comes home to our heart and impresses upon us truths that we may have overlooked or maybe diminished because of familiarity. Make them come to life so that we can see your truth anew. We pray this in your name. Amen. So from our parable, we know that the father had two sons, and he decided to divide up their inheritance equally for each of those two sons. And after a few days, the younger son decided to take that money, that inheritance, to leave his father and essentially do whatever his heart desired. My translation of the Bible says that he squandered it. It's an interesting word. It, it literally means to scatter abroad. It's a word used to describe what happens when you separate chaff from wheat. When we were in Israel this past year, we went to a place called Nazareth Village, and they try to reenact what the life would have been like during the time of Christ. And on one of those scenes, they had a, a man who was leading a donkey who was pulling a sled behind him over grains of wheat. And he was taking that sled, that wooden sled, to, to break up the difference between the wheat and the chaff. And then he would take a big shovel. He would take a big scoop at that shovel, and he'd toss it in the air. And the wind would take that chaff and blow it away, and the seed would fall to the ground. Well, that's a picture of what is happening with this son. He is separating himself from his inheritance, like chaff to the wind. He's giving it away for selfish gain. But not only is he separating himself from his inheritance, we also learn that he is separating himself from a relationship, a a relationship with his father, so much so that his father has determined that his son is dead. He said, my my son was dead. Now, I don't believe that the father necessarily believed that his son had physically died. But what he did know was that death is determined by the son's decision to separate from him. Isn't that what death is? Isn't that why it's so painful it it creates a chasm that cannot be crossed death is separation when the son walked away that's what he did he died to that relationship with his father he walked away he cut all ties in order to do his own thing and on that day that father knew he'd lost a son Now I say that knowing that there are those in our church family who have lost a child. For some, it's been a a physical death, and you know better than anyone else how painful that separation is. There are those, however, whose child is still alive. But that separation may be just as painful. Because you know that when they walked away from you, they were walking away from the Lord. I believe that's the death this father felt that day. The separation from him was representative of the separation of the son from the living God. He had walked away from the relationship. And that separation brings death. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. See, the death that Paul is describing here in Ephesians is the very same one seen with the prodigal son. And we are the prodigal son. We were dead in our relationship with God when we willfully chose to walk away. To take the life that he had given us and willingly choosing to do our own thing. And that separation brings death. We were dead to God just as the Son was dead to the Father. We walked away from God just as the Son walked away from the Father. Now, some of you hear that and you're wondering, well, wait a second. (laughs) When did I do that? When did I walk away, right? Let me explain it this way. It's in our blood. It's in our blood. We're born into a a family of rebels. (laughs) That's why it says at the end of verse uh, 2 that the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We are offspring of disobedience. It's our nature to want to do our own thing. (laughs) I mean, ask any high school student, what are you going to do for college? I don't care. I just need to get away, right? Ask any parent of a toddler, is your child naturally inclined to rebellion? Absolutely. It's in our nature to do our own thing. It's in our blood. Whether determining what to believe, what to do with our life, or the fact that that toy is mine. We have a nature to do our own thing. The core of our being says, I just need to do what's right for me. So, when did you walk away? The moment you could make a decision for yourself. Because that's exactly what you did. You made a selfish decision. And in that moment, you walked away. And so did I. We are the prodigal son. Now, in our parable, we know that the prodigal son, it says, goes to a distant country. Again, doesn't matter what country it is. (laughs) He just wanted to separate himself. That's the point. But while he was in this country, after spending all of his money, after separating himself from that inheritance, it tells us that there was a a famine in that country. And now he starts to, to reap some of the consequences of his decisions. Very often, being on our own means that we stand alone. And that was what happened with this young man. So in order to survive, it tells us in verse 15 of our parable that he hires himself to those within the country that he had fleed to. It literally, he joins himself. He becomes a slave in order to survive. And listen, those people who gave him the opportunity to feed the pigs weren't looking out for his best interests. They were simply giving him something that they had no interest in doing themselves. And as a Jewish young man, this was the worst possible job. He was feeding pigs, the most unclean animal possible. These people weren't even feeding him. His only means of survival was eating the slop that he was feeding the pigs. See, they were only using him until he became useless. When we walked away from God, the very same thing happened to us. See, in verse 2, it talks about, he says, When we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, we were being used until we became useless. Our lives were guided by two 
powerful forces. One of them we could see, and the other one we could not. The one we can see is the world. It's the things that are happening around us. Decisions that are made based on popular choice. Because let's be honest, if everyone's doing it, it must be okay. And then what you decide ultimately determines who you become. Those decisions define your character. And those decisions are never made in a vacuum. They are always influenced by things that are happening around you. It's only a matter of what you choose to believe. Now, here's how the Bible describes this influence of the world around us. If you want to look at it, it's in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to how it describes the influence of this world. It says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here it is, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, when we're influenced by the world, we're influenced by things that make us feel good, things that make us look good, things that promise to fulfill the desires of our heart. But ultimately, the world is feeding our appetite for selfish, sinful decisions. How many of y'all have uh, read the story, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? How many read the book? It's a great story. It's a parable, essentially. But in that story, you may remember when the white witch wanted to lure Edmund away from his brothers and sisters. What did she do? What did she offer him? Remember? Turkish delight. Now, Turkish delight is an incredible candy. It looks good. It smells good. And it tastes amazing. So what could be bad about that, right? Well, what was bad is that she was using it to lead him to destruction. It was bait, essentially. Well, Satan is doing the very same thing to us. You see, he's the influence that we can't see. He's the power, prince of the power of the air. And just because you can't see him doesn't mean he doesn't exist. In fact, he's using the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that pride of life as his Turkish delight. What looks good, what feels good, what promises to satisfy our heart. But all the while, it's bait in order to lead us to our own destruction. Like the prodigal son, he wants to make us a slave. Maybe a slave to money, where you're always striving for something more. Maybe a a slave to acceptance, where our value and self-worth is based on what other people think about us. (laughs) That we're validated by the things that we accomplish, by our gifts, our abilities. Maybe we're a slave to pleasure, where all we want to do is just find something to numb the pain of our discontent doesn't matter he's just using us until we become useless it's a miserable life not all that different than living in that pig pen eating that slop and remember we've all been there we are the prodigal son not only that sometimes like a dog returning to his vomit we actually go back to it we choose that as if that's the better life. We need to understand that like the prodigal, we're only being used until we become useless. Our enemy is using worldly influences to lead us down a path to our own destruction. It's the consequences of going our own way. When we want to do our own thing, that's what we're asking for. Now, in the story of the prodigal son, it says that the son finally comes to his senses. Literally, that's what it says in our passage. That he comes to his 
senses. He decides that just being a servant in his father's house is better than the life that he was living in that moment. And I want you to notice, as he reasoned this in his mind, he was not reasoning that he had any ability to be accepted as a son by his father anymore. He had squandered that opportunity. He didn't deserve it. He willingly walked away and gave that inheritance away. He had no rights to something he had squandered. In fact, his father had every right to be angry. His father had every right he would be justified in his wrath. But the son knew the mercy of his father was his only hope. Because to continue in his current situation would ultimately lead to an unavoidable death. So when the son returned, what did he find? Just think about that scene in your mind. What did he see? Was his dad in the backyard busy doing something else? He was on the front porch, waiting, looking, hoping for the day that he would see his son come down that road and return to him. And when he saw him, he didn't wait for his son to come to him. He ran to his son. He embraced him, and he kissed him. His son knew that he had no right to anything he had given away. That's why he confessed. He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I have no right to anything that I have squandered on my own. And his father responded with forgiveness. He said, my son was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. And then what did he do next? He holds a banquet in his honor, right? He, he tells his servants, go get the fattened calf. Get the best of whatever we have and bring it here because we're going to have a celebration. He, he takes a, a, a robe and, and clothes and, and gives them to his son because you can imagine what he came to his father dressed in, right? He'd been living in the slop with pigs. And so he gave him new clothes. But it also says something else very interesting. It says he put a ring on his hand. Now, to you and I, that may not seem like that big of a deal. But I want you to think back to the story of Joseph. Remember in the story of Joseph when the Pharaoh gave Joseph his ring, his signet ring, what did that mean? It meant that whatever belonged to him as the most powerful ruler in the world now belonged to Joseph. That's exactly what the father has done for his son. He's telling him, by giving him this ring, whatever belongs to me now rightfully becomes yours. See, the son expected that he might be punished. But instead, he found favor in his father's eyes. Isn't that an incredible scene? I mean, we've all heard that story, no telling how many times, but each time we hear it, it should stir something within us that we just can't let go of. Because it's a beautiful picture of God's love. And I think we find a similar scene in our passage in Ephesians. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. See, like the prodigal son, we don't deserve God's mercy. We deserve his punishment. The scripture's clear. We are children of wrath. We walked away. But here's what God's mercy looks like. I love this passage. Another one of my favorites. You don't have to turn there, but I do want you to listen to what it has to say. Okay? Here's what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, like the father of the prodigal son, God shows His patience by waiting. His mercy is revealed as He waits for us to return. He's not slow about His promise. He's waiting. He doesn't write anyone off. He wants us to return. And He's waiting. That's what the mercy of God looks like. Even when we walked away from Him, He never gave up on us. In fact, He ran toward us. And He did that by sending His Son. It tells us in the Scripture that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. The great love of God that we see mentioned here in verse 4 of our passage was revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see in Him a love without boundary because the Scripture tells us that God so loved the world. Every man, woman, and child, every color, every race, every country, He so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was a love without boundary. It's a love without limits. Scripture tells us that there was one sacrifice for all sins for all time. Not repeated sacrifices, not for some sins, not for things just in the past, but past, present, and future. A love without boundary, a love without limits, and a love without conditions tells us in our passage that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we got our life together. He didn't say, hey, you got to shape things up and look a little cleaner before I'm going to take you in. He said, while you were dead, and dead people don't move, I made you alive because of my great love. Without boundary, without limits, without conditions. Like the prodigal son, when we confess our sin, when we recognize our decision to squander what had been given, we are met not with punishment, but with forgiveness. And did you know that the scripture actually tells us that there is a celebration in heaven every time even just one person repents? Did you know that? There's a party in heaven. Every time a single person returns to their father and finds forgiveness. But not only does he forgive, the scripture tells us that he clothes us in righteousness. He gives us a ring in a sense. In verse, uh, chapter, Romans chapter 8, let me read to you a passage that uh, this, I believe describes this. Romans chapter 8 verse 32, it says this. He, speaking of God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's an incredible statement. It's telling us that when we put our faith in Christ, we are united with him. Whatever is rightfully his now freely belongs to us. He takes the ring and puts it on our hand. See, his death on the cross releases us from slavery to sin. His resurrection from the dead raises us to walk as new creations in Christ. Old things have gone. New things have come. We are transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Remember Paul's prayer last week? He's praying that the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead would work in your hearts and lives to transform you to become more like Christ. To open our eyes. So that we can experience what it means to know Christ and to be known by Him. See, the truth we are seeking is a person. 
It's not a philosophy. It's not a, a, an, an attribute of, of something that exists outside. It's in a person. And when we are united with Christ, we see the value of who we are in God's eyes. We are saved by grace, and that grace has been lavished upon us. God freely gives all things to those who have trusted in him through faith in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Father's ring. What rightly belongs to him is freely given to you. Now when that's who you are, it should put the righteousness of God on display. We become trophies of grace for all the world to see. That's why the Bible tells us, Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that when they see your good works, what happens? They give glory to your Father in heaven. We are trophies of grace. Because even those good works are a miraculous work of God, right? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, that we should walk in them. Now here's a treat for you this morning. I have a gift card. It's one that's prepaid, okay? It's something that everybody can use. It's down here at Market Street. So who eats food? Everybody, right? All right, so here's the deal. This is the way this will work. Let me see a show of hands who, of anyone who might want this. Okay? Here's what's interesting. You may not be able to see this. Oh, Mar yeah, thank you, HUD. <laughs> HUD's hungrier than most. Let's say that. But here's what's interesting. You couldn't see this. Most of you raised your hand, but here's my question. Why wouldn't everyone raise their hand? It's free. It's something everyone needs. Why wouldn't everyone raise their hand? Well, let me suggest a few possible reasons. One of, one of them is the fact that you probably think there's a catch, right? <laughs> there's a hidden agenda in here somewhere. Some of you think, I don't want to be embarrassed because I know as soon as I get up here, he's going to make me do a dance or something, right? And some of you are restricted by the confines of this place where that's not what you do. We sit quietly and silently, right? But let me ask you this. If I were to explain this to you again and say, look, there's no catch. You're not going to have to do a dance. There's nothing you do to earn it. This is yours. Now let me see a show of hands of those who might want to have this. Is Will and Kirsten here? Do you want this, Kirsten? All right, come up here. Come on. Come on. You're being invited. Now this is where the illustration breaks down a little bit. I purposely want to give this to Will and Kirsten because many of you know they spent hours taking pictures for a directory that will soon come out and we appreciate the time that you took to do that so thank you that's yours <laughs> here's the point salvation is a gift you can't earn it you don't deserve it but like any gift You've got to receive it. God sent his son. And when he did, he invited you. He invited you to come. Take the gift and have it as your own to become one of his. And the question is, well, how do you receive that gift? What does that look like? Well, there's a lot of places you could go to answer that question. Let me take you to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Listen to how it explains how to receive that gift. It says in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. 
and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. There it is, believing with your heart. We talked about that last week. It's epinosis, right? It's not just a head knowledge where you know something about who Christ is as if it's simply an historical fact. It's a heart knowledge where you realize what he did was done for you. It's personal. It also goes on to say that we, that our confession results in salvation. And what is that confession? It's simple. I believe. I believe that what he did, he did for me. And that salvation is a gift of God. You see, like the prodigal son, we've got to come to the same conclusion that our only hope is the mercy of a loving father. Because the life we live apart from him will unavoidably end in destruction. And so we have to go home. Now I know many have heard that message over and over again. Again, 67 Mustang, right? But don't let it become so familiar that it loses its significance. After all, the story doesn't end when you accept Christ. In fact, that's really where it begins. The scripture tells us that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. I love the way Paul describes it in his uh, letter to, to Titus. I want you to listen to what he has to say. You can just write this passage down. It's Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. Listen to this very carefully. And notice the echo of what's being communicated in our passage this morning. It says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. Sound familiar? Enslaved to lust and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, always seeking something more hateful, hating one another for what we don't have. But when the kindness of God our Savior... And his love for mankind appeared. He, Jesus, saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When we are saved by grace, we are no longer conformed by the influences of this world and the power of Satan. We are transformed by the grace and forgiveness of God. His Spirit washing and renewing us. And we'll learn later in our study of Ephesians that that Washing of the Spirit is come, comes often through the, the washing. It tells us the washing of the Word. Where our lives are transformed by an understanding of the truth because God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we've looked at this passage as well, but I can't help but believe that it is one of the best in describing the effect of that washing, that forgiveness, and that trusting faithfulness in following God. Here's what it looks like. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please Him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power. According to His glorious might. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's what it looks like. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we see ourselves as God sees us. That's how we find peace in the midst of anxiety, hope in the midst of despair. See, when God is for us, His grace is lavished upon us. And until we understand the depth of the depravity of our sin, we don't understand the miraculous rescue of his saving grace. That's the point. Now, as we finish up, I don't want to overlook what may be my favorite passage or my favorite verse, and that's verse 10. Read it with me again. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God not only ran after us, he goes before us. He prepares good works ahead of time so that we can walk in them. And what he's telling us is, look, if you'll stay close to me, if you'll walk in fellowship, if you'll trust in me, then as we walk together, I'm going to lead you right into the middle of the good works that I've prepared beforehand. He wants us to experience everything he created us to be, and he's going to lead us right down that path all the way to everlasting life. And if you are not saved by good deeds, then how in the world can you be perfected by them? That's Paul's point to the Galatians. Having been begun by the Spirit, he says, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, if you're saved as a miracle of God's grace, did he somehow give you the reins and say, all right, buddy, you've got it from here. Good luck. No, you see, the miracle of salvation and the miracle of sanctification are the very same miracle. It's the same power of God. Not only are you saved by grace, but you grow in grace as well. As long as you're walking with him, you step right in the middle of the good works that he's prepared beforehand. Now, I know you've heard that maybe a hundred times, but I hope this morning you'll take it to heart because here's what you need to realize. The world is filled with distractions. There's a lot of competing philosophies and opinions of what makes life complete. But I want you to understand that the Christian message stands unique in contrast to all those opinions. Now, you've heard what I've said this morning, but let me give you a taste from a new perspective. A man by the name of Tim Keller, who I highly respect. Listen how he describes the very same truths that we talked about this morning. Listen carefully. It says, a gospel is an announcement of something that has, been, that has happened in history, something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. Right there, you can see the difference between Christianity and all other religions, including no religion. He goes on to explain, he says, the essence of other religions is advice. Christianity is good news. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God. Forever. This is how you live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says, this is what's been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn that way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It is joyously good news. How do you feel when you're given good advice on how to live? Someone says, here's how to love the way you ought to. Or here's the integrity you should have. Maybe they illustrate a high moral standard by telling you a story of, of some great hero. But when you hear it, how does it make you feel? Inspired? Maybe. But do you feel the way the listeners who heard those heralds felt when victory was announced? Do you feel your burdens fall off? Do you feel as if something great has been done for you and you're not a slave anymore? Of course you don't. It weighs you down. This is how I have to live? It's not the gospel. The gospel is that God connects you, not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in history for you. And that makes it absolutely different from every other religion or philosophy in the world. That's the heart of the issue. The gospel is the story about a gift. A story of rescue and redemption. So don't hear the story from a distance. Draw in and realize that the story is about you. It's about me. We are the prodigal son. Now I really hope that if you've been searching, that you'll see that this is what your heart's been longing for. 
this is what we desire most. And it's fulfilled in person, not in a philosophy. Now, some of you know that that's not the end of the story of the prodigal son that I read this morning, right? There's actually more to the story, and you probably remember the rest of that story. The older brother, who never left, is out working in the field, and he hears all this commotion going on at the house, right? So he asked one of the servants, hey, what's going on? And they said, hey, your brother's returned. And your father has said to kill the fattened calf, there's a celebration going on. Come on, join in. Do you remember what his response was? Did he come in and and rejoice in the return of his brother? No. In fact, he would not have any part of it. He was angry. And we learn about that angry as he later tells his father, this isn't fair. Look at all the good things that I have done. Look at all the gifts and abilities that I have. My brother squandered it all, and he's being rewarded. I deserve more. Interesting. I want you to notice what the father says. Don't turn there. Listen. You're the prodigal son, or you may be the older brother. Listen to what he says. My child, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead. And he's begun to live. He was lost. And he's been found. See, the jealousy of the older brother was based on the belief that he deserved more. He might have stayed home, but I would offer the possibility that he was just as enslaved by sin as his younger brother. It just looked better because it was dressed up in dutiful service. The father's saying, all that is mine is yours. In other words, you've been invited to the same banquet of grace. You cannot earn something that is freely given to you. Now, I understand that many of you here this morning are believers. You have put your faith in Christ, and I trust that that's true. But like the older brother, some of you are still working really hard to earn the Father's favor. Some of you feel like you deserve better. That you've been faithful to Christian duties and life and ministry. And this isn't fair. You deserve more. But listen, you can't earn something that's already been given to you. All that is his is yours. Your greatest reward is your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have a treasure in his word, the gift of his spirit. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. All that is his is yours. Don't just work in the field. Sit at the table. Even as a child of God, it's easy to do our own thing, to chart our own course, and then invite God to join our good and perfect plan. Let him lead the way. We are his workmanship. He is the potter. We are the clay. Trust in his abilities, his power, his goodness that far exceeds anything that we could offer on our own. As we finish up this morning, I want to encourage you not to overlook the power of this passage. And I think probably to some degree or another, there's room for all of us to come to a place of confession. For some, you've walked away. And you need to come home. You need to hear this story and realize you haven't been abandoned. But just the opposite. The mercy of God is found in his patience 
as he waits for you to return. To understand the great lengths to which he has gone to demonstrate his love for you. A love without boundary, a love without limits, a love without conditions. And so that decision for you this morning may be simply to surrender. To see that what your heart longs for most is not a principle, it's not an opinion, it's a person. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Now for others, you still may be home. You haven't walked away, but that doesn't mean you're not enslaved. In fact, it may be even more dangerous because it looks so good on the outside. Let me encourage you not to put God in your debt as if he owes you something. But instead, we realize we owe him everything. And so our life is one that is lived out of gratitude, gratefulness for his grace and forgiveness. And so even as a child of God, we still have room to confess in sinful independence from the very source of life and the hope of our salvation. Let's not get ahead of God and ask him to join us. Let's let him lead the way and follow him. And trust in his goodness and grace to lead us right in the middle of the good works that he's prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them together. Amen? This is a powerful passage. Don't let it become so familiar that it loses its significance. For just a few minutes before I close in prayer, it's your time. And I would encourage you to go with a heart of confession. Go before the Lord who's waiting and listening to what you have to say. So take some time to do that. Father, we are the prodigal son. We have taken all that you have given and we have walked away. Choosing to do things according to our own desires, finding our own answers, charting our own course, living our own life. But Father, we need to be reminded as we were this morning that that life apart from you, that separation from that relationship brings death. It is a life that is lived in slavery. It is influenced by the world around us and the tools that our enemy uses to draw us away. 